Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to episode 31 of Health Unchained. If you like what you hear in the next hour or so, you should follow Health Unchained on social media to stay up to date on current events and also show your support. Subscribe using your favorite podcast platform, including Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. If you're new to the healthcare blockchain space, you should really check out the show notes for a link to a Udemy course for non-technical healthcare professionals. I wouldn't recommend it if I haven't taken it myself. There's a special 75% discount if you use promo code DOGUM2019. In this episode, we dive into a use case for distributed ledger technology that seems so obvious now after my conversation with Anthony Begendo. Anthony is the CEO of Professional Credentials Exchange, and he started and ran many companies in the past. He's been in the credentialing solutions business for decades now. He articulately explains the benefits of an exchange for provider credentialing data. He envisions his company will offer all industries with a marketplace to acquire professional credentialing requirements more quickly than existing traditional methods of verifying that a professional job applicant's claimed credentials are in fact true and have been validated. So now, let's start the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Our guest today is Anthony Bagando, who is here to talk to us about his company, Professional Credentials Exchange, which addresses the challenges facing professional identity and credentialing in healthcare. Anthony, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Can we talk a little bit about your background and maybe how you got to this point? Sure. So, so I've been in the healthcare technology and, and uh, services space for many, many years and started a consulting firm up in the early 2000s. And a lot of the work that we did right out of the gate with that firm was helping organizations fix credentialing and practitioner administration problems. In 2002, we were awarded a project with uh, the Army Reserve to build for them a centralized credentialing center for all of their global deployments. And at the time, I think there was about 11,500 practitioners net in the Army Reserve. We um, built that, we're very successful with that. Um, in 2006, we were awarded another project to build a similar operation for the National Guard uh, and, uh, and uh, built that out between 2007 and 2009 and deployed it uh, globally in 2009 and 2010. We were then operating the center for them, um, not just developing the uh, technology, but operating the center and one of the core problems and doing that work relied or relied around the fact that there's nothing we could do to speed up the acquisition of certain kinds of credentials, right? And these would be things like employment verifications or delineations of privileges or uh, procedure counts, peer references, uh, postgraduate medical education, now practice claim investigations, and so forth. And, you know, we could build the most efficient business processes and the best technology in the world, but if it took seven weeks for someone to respond to a letter it was what it was and no matter how much we harassed them and called them and followed up with them we would still be sitting there waiting beholden to them to get us that information and and it quickly dawned on us that there has to be a better way and you know we looked um starting in about 2013 actually just doing research on you know why the market is the way it is around credentialing and you know looked in the history of, of credentialing and the uses of credentialing processes all across the marketplace. And about mid-2014, we really came to the decision point that we could build something that would facilitate trade 
and that was the missing uh, link we felt you know in in the in regard to exchanging this information so we we set out to build a technology platform initially focused on this concept but also supporting our military work um, you know and, and, and letting us better that process for the military and then com- and then we would commercialize that once we were we would sort of gone through v1 with with our military clients uh, in 2015, unfortunately, we lost the contract um, mm-hmm. on a recompete of that work, um, and we're sort of sitting with this asset in our lap, and had built this thing, and we're in the middle of beta test, you know, with it. When uh, unfortunately, we lost that contract. But the good news is, is we had this thing that we built, uh, and in 2000, early 2017, I read a white paper that was written by Dr. John Sotos, who was at the time a chief medical officer at Intel. He, had, he was also the uh, Air National Guard state surgeon for California. And he had mentioned in this white paper how blockchain technology could really be, um, you know, the glue that brings the market together technically around this information. Very, in, in, in a very simple uh, manner, he described that trust is what blockchain technology provides for an environment like this. And, and a great example is, you know, if I have a piece of, a document artifact, let's say, um, and it says I worked at Eastside Hospital from May 2002 to June 2009, and I left in good standing. You know that artifact is important, but it's the verification of, of the legitimacy of that artifact that that is truly what hospitals do when they do credentialing work. And when we when we looked at this at this set of information, and we looked at blockchain, we thought, my goodness, we can create an exchange for this information. You know, truly like a market. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, long story short, I was introduced to my colleagues at Hash Health in the fall of 2017, uh, went to the Distributed Health Conference, met them there. We started talking shortly thereafter, and uh, we put a company together in, in March of 2018, and that is what has become ProCredX. That's a great story. That's actually where I first saw you present on this topic in this company, actually, was at the Hash Health uh, Distributed Health Conference back in Nashville yeah. last year. So yeah. it was really interesting when I saw you there and I was like, I got to get this guy on the show. Uh, eventually <laughs> here you are. So again, thanks for, for being here. Um, sure. So you mentioned the military. So right now, I'm not really sure what goes into credentialing for uh, military medical professionals. Is it similar to what it is for It's a little, little more complex than typical civilian credentialing and, and especially for reserve component uh, folks because they are not there full-time. They're there, you know, one weekend a month and two weeks a year until they're deployed. And, you know, the uh, military, rightly so, uh, it has a very detailed, diligent process to ensure that if someone is going to be sent to, you know, Afghanistan or Kuwait or, or to a, a disaster somewhere, that they have the right skills and training and they're actually doing what they are supposed to be doing in the military in the civilian world. Um, and, and the, you know, the rigor around, uh, you know, the credentialing is, is, uh, is, uh, is significant. Now I will say I've seen several private sector clients who also have very rigorous, uh, you know, uh, credential requirements for the same reason, you know, they're hiring somebody new, they don't know them from Adam, they're coming from a different state. Um, and you know, joint commission, uh, you know, uh, uh, CMS and others all have mandates around what looks what a good credentialing process looks like and what needs to be verified. In order to stick to the, those uh, regulations or, or standards, and others greatly exceed them, um, you know, because they want their own risk management uh, protocols to be extensive, right? And there's and frankly, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's the right thing to be doing. So right um, now, I was going to ask, what's the process right now for a hospital to credential a provider? So let's say. You know, there's an opening for director of, or you know, a medical director for you know, nephrology or something. What's the next sure. step? So, the, so typically, the credentialing begins in recruitment. So, at some point in the recruiting life cycle, um, the the the, org, the parties, the the physician and the, or the practitioner and the organization say we want to work together. Uh, and when they make that you know decision, they begin the credentialing process, and it typically starts with an application to the medical staff, which is usually a 10-page paper document that people fill out, an application for privileges in terms of defining what they want to do clinically in the organization. Uh, and then a, a, um, they, they're usually given a checklist of all the artifacts that they need to deliver to the organization to confirm their current clinical competency. Think of it like taking your CV 
and decomposing it down to all of your education, all of your work history, everything. You need to provide back information both on the application and the artifacts that support what you say you have done in your career, uh, you know, out of, you know, in, in great detail. Right. Then and that's the responsibility the, of the provider, the one that's the getting practitioner. hired. That's correct. Okay. And then the medical staff services organization takes this stack of information that is handed back over to them. Um, and it's usually within three or four days of getting the initial application. And then they take every single one of those artifacts uh, and all of the work history and all that, and they verify it mm -hmm. with the sources of that information. Um, and they go, they call the hospitals where the practitioners worked, and they call the uh, the residency programs or write a letter to the residency programs where, you know, where they had their postgraduate medical education. They send letters out to the current liability insurers requesting, uh, you know, face sheet copies of the liability insurance, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Peer references, you know, and, you, know you name so it. So that's the part and where it gets sort of expensive, that, right? That's the, that's the real fast. Right. <laughs> that's right. Because, you know, and we'll talk about this in a minute, right? But, you know, that, that administrative process, you know, this, think of it as you, you decompose down a set of tasks, right? Maybe you've got 50 tasks to go do verifications for the, the person's uh, professional uh, career. And then you throw all these things out into the marketplace and just wait for them to come back to you, right? And if you can imagine if you're in a credentialing organization that's even, even uh, a modest size, you may have 30, 40, 50 different concurrent credentialing episodes per person. Um, doing the work going on and, and if you could just imagine in mind the web of work that's interlaced there to try and you know keep up with where this is all going and the status of your requests and all that it's exceptionally difficult right and and uh, you know, I want to touch on it's very important it's the cost right labor cost for doing credentialing isn't is not significant right you know you're spending two three maybe four thousand dollars uh, onboard someone and get them in, enrolled with their current pair contracts, right? It, what's it's the opportunity cost that is is significant, according to Merritt Hawkins in their 2016 revenue uh, inpatient outpatient revenue survey. The average daily bill or daily net revenue, I'm sorry, um, for a physician in the United States was $7,500 per day. So if you have a credentialing process and pair enrollment process that is taking five months, six months to place there's a time from when you say we want to recruit dr smith to the time that dr smith is on board and fully uh, able to bill for patient services right at seventy five hundred dollars a day you're talking about 150 a month you know or six to nine hundred thousand dollars for each hire right and if you can shorten that life cycle down just modestly if you can shave 20 days off of that you know uh you know uh five month process you're going, to, you're going to create ROI for an organization that is massive, right, in the tens of millions of dollars even for a, per year for a modest-sized organization. Um, one, of our, um, one of our partners that we have in the business today, um, you know, they, they were hiring, uh, you know, we, well, we, should, we did an analysis and basically found that if we could reduce their cycle time by 20 days, um, they would see about a $50 million ROI um, wow. on, on uh, improved revenue recognition. That that's right per year. That's so. That's when you really start talking serious, serious money. <laughs> definitely. And I, I don't care how big of an organization you are. That's a lot, right? And that makes a big impact on the bottom line. Definitely. And plus, you you think about it this way: you're going to have these providers helping patients sooner rather than waiting around for all the paperwork to get resolved. That's correct. Capacity, right? It's a yeah. there's a capacity problem, right? Where if you have a five, you have five physicians that work in your ED, and one leaves or one, you know, uh, takes a leave of absence or whatever, you know, you're down twenty percent on capacity. So you talk about how you know professional credentials exchange is going to be able to help create this exchange or marketplace. But what does that really mean? Right now, these individuals who are hiring uh, providers, they have to go out and reach out to the medical university that gave them that diploma, or talk to the residency hospital that where that person. Uh, work that, but how is the exchange going to work? I don't. So it's so just to maybe give a little more background on the the mechanics of the current state, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if you're if you're that use case we talked about earlier, Doctor Smith being hired by Eastside Hospital, so you're going to get credentialed by Eastside Hospital. 
you may have to be credentialed multiple facilities within Eastside Hospital, if, if, uh, if, if, which may be the case. And then you're going to get credentialed with all of the payer contracts that that organization has. And that could be 15 to 30, you know, um, per, you know, for that organization. So every one of those counterparties are collecting this stack of information and, re and verifying it, right? In most cases, there's, some, uh, there's a thing out there called delegated credentialing, um, and that does exist in some markets. Uh, but for the most part, you know, the, the majority of the market is doing this redundant, repetitive process. The same is true if you if you also want to go work uh, for a telemedicine organization or you want to work a day a month at an outpatient clinic, right? You, you do the same process. So, you know, what, what dawned on us a few years ago was that this data is everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's pervasive across the market and it's been redundantly gathered, verified and stored with virtually every organization which a practitioner has had some kind of business relationship with. Right. So what, um, you know, what we see out there is this massive landscape of redundant data. And if we can bring large owners into the exchange early to, you know, to bring that supply into the marketplace, um, and those large owners are folks like national uh, insurers, uh, very large data aggregators, and then very large health systems and markets that were, you know, originally going or initially going to target to go to market in. You know, we can have a very supple, uh, substantial data set day one when we go to market that then can be consumed by, you know, the other constituents in the market from a demand perspective as needed, right? Um, and, and if you know, what we're doing with the market strategically is looking at the fact that, yes, you have these credential artifacts, you know, like I mentioned, a, a picture of a employment uh, verification or what have you. And we're creating for the practitioners a portfolio to manage all of that information themselves, right? And then we're creating the market for And, you know, there are two classes of verifications that we have in the market. One is a, a verification directly from the primary source, meaning that Eastside Hospital provided us, you know, with this verification directly, and it came from Eastside. Or a, a, a type of verification we call verification by consensus. And what that means is that, multiple independent unaffiliated parties have independently verified that credential themselves and then collectively they own that asset yeah. right and and you know and then have that asset available for others to acquire from them directly right and and what we're doing is is, is creating a marketplace a venue for that commerce and what we're not doing is building some massive centralized repository of credentials information, right? We're creating one homogenized, um, you know, portfolio for practitioners, and we're creating the environment for, um, for owners of the verifications of those credentials to buy and sell that information between themselves, right? If that makes sense. No different than a commodities exchange or a stock exchange. So or, or how is the initial verification you know, once that initial company, Eastside Hospital, confirms that this doctor is legit and this is a correct verification, how are they, why are we trusting that initial verification? That's, a, well, that, so something that came from the primary source directly, this is where the blockchain thing fits in perfectly, right? Because we ledger the fact that this artifact mm -hmm. and this verification came from Eastside Hospital. And we obviously hash it, and we know now that this this asset exists in the marketplace. You know, it's it's on the ledger now, and we have the artifact in a portfolio. And we can point that that verification to the artifact, right? And know that it came directly from the primary source, quote unquote. In the in the latter case that I gave, you know, when we have multiple duplicates, you know, when we onboard folks into the exchange, we ledger what they have in their credentialing systems or verifications of, uh, of artifacts. When we see these duplications and redundant, you know, verifications of the same education credential, for example, um, you know, we can join those and that's what creates the consensual verification. We can literally show that, yes, you know, these three organizations own this verification, but we've also found subsequent to that asset being created that 18 other organizations redundantly had that same verification in their systems. Right. And can you can really visualize the redundancy. It's incredible. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and then it, and from a, you know, from a trust perspective, it just further enhances, you know, the 
the folks who, who may have a little be a little skittish early with, with blockchain technology, but it, when you can see it, you know, across, uh, you know, across the industry, it's uh, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Now that makes a lot of sense. You'll be able to basically witness or see the historical information about these verification. That's steps. exactly right. You really see the life, yeah. you know, so it, once this asset enters the uh, exchange, you can see um, how many transactions, have gone on how many times other organizations for example have acquired that verification uh where when it entered the exchange how long it's been on the exchange if it has something like shelf life to it you know how close it is to expiring you know so on and so forth and and then you can apply your own business rules that your organization has around some of that data to say look you know if something is within uh, 45 days of expiring or something that is expirable um, uh, and changeable uh, has been verified in in more than forty five days, or greater than forty five days. Then then we won't accept that. We need a, a fresh one, a fresh verification. Mm-hmm. And that's again part of the onboarding of, of customers, and kind of harkens all the way back to what we're doing with the military. So, what's the typical cost? So, let's say, how much would it cost to buy this verification verified information about a provider? Great question. It's a market. So, well, we're we're providing the marketplace. Right. But the owners of that information and the buyers and sellers, you know, set their prices accordingly. Now, you know, when you have tens of millions of credential artifacts, you know, like a like a large insurer does, you're not going to sit there and go price everyone your artifacts. <laughs> and, you know, what you what what we you know, and, and we're working with our partners, our go to market partners on this very thing. It's, it's part of our economics committee and our in our design partner program. Um, but, you know, how we want to price different classes of credentials themselves, right? We may say, okay, we're going to charge eight bucks for an employment verification, or we're going to charge, uh, uh, you know, $5 for a board certification or, or what have you. And we'll let our members define the, that pricing. But ultimately, you know, the economist to me wants to see market forces take, take, take force over time Absolutely. and let the market, you know, set its own pricing based on supply and demand. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about how much it costs now, I, I, like you said, it could take up to five to six months before they get it. You know, yeah. Um, and they start providing service. That's a lot of, a lot of money. So whatever the price is, it's going to be lower than the cost, the um, lost opportunity cost there. So. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I I, I would estimate in re- that you know we've done tons of modeling around this, um, and you know, please don't hold my feet to the fire on, on this number. But, um, you know, I, I, my gut tells me that someone will be able to go to the exchange, get 90% plus what they're looking for, uh, and be able to acquire that for a couple hundred dollars. Hmm. Right. And I mean, unless there's, you know, things like very complicated malpractice claims and settlements that have to take hundreds of pages of documents, you know, to, uh, to, to, uh, to review, you know, those obviously have a very high value because it takes months to acquire that information. But for your standard run-of-the-mill credentials, you know, I can see, you know, a couple hundred dollars perhaps to acquire them. And when you look at the $7,500 a day loss of, of our forfeiture, I should say, of revenue, that's a, not even a, it's a no-brainer, right? Further, you know, if, you're, if your credentialing staff can quickly acquire this information, you know, gather the nuts and bolts that are not, you know, available on the exchange, but likely things that are specific to their organization, get that information, you know, completed by the practitioner, verified, they move the practitioner on a committee and, and privileging and they're, they're done, you know, they're, they're on their way. And, you know, I'm, we're never going to claim that we can, you know, shrink cycle time down by 90%, but boy, I know we can certainly put a big dent in it, you know, 20, 30, 40 days, you know, on an average, on an average life cycle. Can you tell me about your company partners that you are, you know, partnering with for this go to market? Yeah. You know, strategy? the ones we, I can tell you the ones we've announced, um, you know, so we've announced uh, uh, seven so far, and that is a Texas Hospital Association, uh, Spectrum Health up in Michigan, um, uh, Accenture, the Hardenberg Group, HealthLink uh, Dimensions in Atlanta, which is one of the largest data aggregators around uh, practitioner credentials in the, in the country, um, WellCare in Tampa, and um, uh, WellCare and uh, uh, Anthem's National Government Services uh, Organization, which is a, which is a, called a MAC, and they do Medicare Medicaid enrollments uh, for uh, practitioners, and I think they do something in the neighborhood of two hundred eighty or two hundred ninety thousand enrollments a year. So, so each one of those are a credentialing episode. 
So all of these initial folks bring scale, they bring regional you know, healthcare markets to, you know, to the table, and uh, most importantly, implementation capabilities for us, uh, again, to help us scale quickly when we, as, we, as we commercialize. Yeah, those are definitely some pretty big names. Uh, what's been the conversations, like what have been the conversations around blockchain? Like I, I assume these people aren't fully aware of blockchain's capabilities. Yeah. I feel like nobody is yet, but like how have you been you know, facilita- facilitating that conversation with them? It's a great question. So, you know, blockchain has been a, a bit of a double-edged sword, right? You know, a lot of folks um, hear blockchain and immediately think Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. right? And, and uh, you know, uh, folks, are, you know, a lot of folks have a predisposed notion that that's, you know, a, uh, you know, not a great place to be. Um, and, you know, what I, I, I take great legs to really talk more about distributed ledger because it's truly what we're using, Right. right. Um, and how distributed ledger technology is what it is. And this, the simple way that I try to describe this for, especially for non-technical folks is that, you know, for the last 20 or so years, we've had a software architecture model um, that set, that has, uh, you know, data logic and user experience, right. Especially for, for web apps. Right. And, and um, where I really see distributed ledger technology coming into the stack, the architectural stack, is a new layer simply called trust that sits between logic and data, right? And we can use distributed ledger to test the, you know, the, the veracity of the information that we're relying upon in our transactional work and can, and can say, yes, you know, I know this is, you know, this information is reliable. I know where it came from and if it's never changed, right? Um, you know, and that's, you know, the, to me for this use case, that's just the beauty um, you know, of how that technology can be applied to credentials. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. On April 30th, 2019, BetterPath, a four-year-old organization based in Brooklyn, New York, and featured on my show, episode 23 with CEO Matt Cinderbrand, announced that it had been acquired by a company called Humanity.co. Headquartered in Princeton, New Jersey, Humanity.co claims to be the world's first and only organization developing human rights and corollary sovereign laws in a decentralized manner on blockchains. They are already planning to combine with BetterPath's suite of health data technologies to unlock some of the 80% of healthcare data that is currently not available to patients, providers, or clinical researchers. Matt will join Humanity.co as Senior Vice President, Chief Product Officer, and as a member of their board of directors. Humanity.co has been creating a buzz around the concept of the 31st human right, legal ownership of personal data. The United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights currently consists of a preamble and 30 articles. When do you think the right to own your own data will actually become the 31st? A link to the press announcement is in the show notes. And now back to the show with Ed- And now back to the show with Anthony Bigando, CEO of Professional Credentials Exchange. Can you talk a little bit about the technology stack? So when you say blockchain and when you say distributed ledger uh, technology, are you using, you know, like Ethereum or are you talking about uh, IBM's blockchain? What what software, what technology are you using? So um, I'd, I'd rather not say okay. <laughs> in, all, in all candor. Um, you know, we've okay. got some non-disclosure agreements with a couple of different firms we're working with right now. Um, but I will tell you that, you know, we believe that we are now in the third generation of, of, of digital distributed ledger technology. Um, the first, um, you know, the first generation, of course, is Bitcoin. The second generation where a lot of the protocols were focused on cryptocurrency apps that have then, you know, sort of, you know, come up, come along like Hyperledger and Ethereum and Enterprise Ethereum and so forth to try to find use cases outside of, you know, the crypto world. And then the third generation of protocols are those that have been developed for really industrial applications and have been purpose-built for performance, right? Um, and to wit, you know, in in our analyses thus far, just in the use case I mentioned at the beginning of the call where you've got physicians being employed by or contracted or employed by hospitals and enrolled in payer contracts, that 
use case alone in healthcare. Uh, it requires about 200 million credential artifact verifications a year, right, across the country. And that at a 12% um, uh, turnover rate on average across the country, right? So when you've got that kind of volume, you know, you can't crawl along at 14 transactions a second. The market won't bear that. You've got to be able to confirm that you can run at thousands of transactions a second in a highly reliable and scalable environment and be able to, um, you know, to, and be able to process underneath the, you know, that, uh, that window. So protocol wise, I will say, you know, we've looked at eight, I think, uh, over the last year and, and we have narrowed it down to a couple. Um, and, you know, for us right now, it's all about performance, scalability, and, you know, and uh, long-term reliability, right, for us. So, Interesting. so we'll see. We'll be probably making some announcements later, you know, in this quarter. And, and can, can, you, can you share those eight? I'm just curious. I'm thinking when you say third generation, my mind goes to, like, Cardano or EOS or, um, you know, some of these protocols. But is that something you Corda, Digital Asset, you know, those guys. Exactly. You're exactly right. So. Interesting. And of course, we you know we, early we looked at Enterprise Ethereum, we looked at Hyperledger, we looked at uh, Ripple. I Ripple, think is what it is. Yeah. And, and you know we just we we you know I, there, I don't want to say that there's any wrong with them, but for our use case, we right. we we had concerns about performance, right? And and I mean I know IBM's doing a ton of work with Hyperledger right now, and, and hats off to them for the good work that they're doing there. Um, and it's not to say that we we won't consider that you know going down the road a little bit if there's some breakthroughs there, but for us you know you know we're not focused on a public um, you know kind of envi- you know environment. We're a very much a permissioned members only exchange. Uh, and further to that to that you know point, we've got issues like HIPAA and high tech and so forth to to build into our architecture where you, know, you can't have everybody seeing everybody else's transactions. Right, that can't happen. We've got to, you know, you, you, your view into your, uh, you know, your membership, uh, you know, uh, presence can be has to be limited to what you've been authorized to see, mm-hmm. right? And you know, that's a, a big architectural leap for a lot of those a lot of those protocols. Right? So the question becomes, who is giving permission? Is it uh, Procredix? And how, how I'm is so that? glad you asked that question. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> because this is a very important thing for me personally. Right, the practitioner controls access to their information entirely, right? And you know they, you know, we need for for those members of our exchange to know that their data is secure and private, and that you know, and that no one's out trying to acquire their data, uh, you know, and so on and so forth, you know. And so this is a very quick use case. The way that the sort of exchange works at the hundred thousand foot level is a new organization joins the exchange. They create, um, you know, a, a, a their their we call SLAs, which define all the business rules and validation checks and all that against the classes of credentials that they need by occupation. So mm-hmm. for surgeons, they need this, and for orthopedics and the orthopedic surgeons, they need that, and for neurologists, they need this. And so on and so forth. Define all that. And then, um, then they begin requesting access to different practitioners' portfolios for credentialing. And that request has to be authorized by the practitioner for acquisition of that data before they can see anything. They can see that they're on the exchange, but they can't see anything within the portfolio without access, right? And, and there's, some, I think, some very important things to think about with this uh, from a privacy perspective as well. You know, say Dr. Smith is employed by XYZ Hospital and works there five days a week. But Dr. Smith wants to do some telemedicine moonlighting, you know, at home from eight to ten o'clock at night, or wants to work in an outpatient clinic one day a month on Saturday. That's his right, right? Unless he's restricted contractually from otherwise doing that, you know, uh, he he or she have, have that right, and they don't want you know organization A to see that organization B has verified their credentials, mm-hmm. right? And therefore, you've got to keep the node architecture organized in such a way. That you know that your view into the exchange is limited to the things that you can see, right? And I think we think this is very, very important to our our long term viability uh, and growth in the marketplace. It's very interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned telehealth and how that can become like a huge use case because people are going to want to be credentialed in multiple states. I know that every state has different requirements for their application process. Mm-hmm. So. 
How are you involving any government organizations or state level organizations to be also a partner of pro credits? Um, you know, we are, uh, frankly, um, meeting with a, a number of both accreditation organizations, the feds, um, you know, and some other, you know, so critical policy players in this space in the marketplace. And, you know, I think once folks understood that we weren't trying to create another credentialing system, quote unquote, in the market, and that we were actually creating a utility mm-hmm. and understand the value proposition of the utility itself, uh, you know, we've had, you know, very, very good interest in what, and strong interest in what we're doing. And, you know, folks, you know, this is definitely a technology shift in the market. Uh, I, I liken the, you know, the shift from horses to tanks in the cavalry, right? <laughs> And, you know, when this new technology comes into, into, into play, things change, right? And, the, you know, the way we've done credentialing for 50 years is going to become quickly dated. And technology is going to provide that layer of trust I spoke of earlier to allow folks to know that what they're looking at is legitimate and can be relied upon and does not need to be re-verified for the 80th time, um, you know, with the same organization for the same, you know, trying to achieve the same objective, right? Yeah, so does that mean that these people that are currently credentialing providers in the traditional sense, will they be kind of out of a job because it'll be Not much quicker and easier? No. How does, who is... So this is that's a great, another great question. You know, um, the, the people who work in the medical staff services office and, uh, you know, in hospitals or credential departments and, and with payers and so forth, you know, they do a lot, a lot, you know, outside of just gathering and verifying credential artifacts. Um, you know, they manage the, they help manage and administer the entire, uh, you know, clinical workforce at that organization. So, you know, what we're doing is taking a process that's broken and problematic for everyone in healthcare and fixing this, this one component of quote unquote credentialing. Mm-hmm. They, you know, folks still need to manage their relationships with the practitioners, deal with um, a, a committee review and appointment, privileging, um, performance evaluation, peer review, uh, you know, and all kinds of other things that, that these folks do every day to support their clinical workforce. So, you know, uh, you know, by, by no means is our objective to you know, disintermediate the market of credentialing professionals. We need them. And, you know, the, you know, we need their competency and their reliability to continue to verify things that aren't verified yet or new or changed or what have you, submit that information back in the exchange and create this ecosystem across the marketplace, you know, that, uh, that we're trying to create. Very interesting. I mean, I think the model is really great. Um, what is ProCredix's business model in terms of how do they make money? Or how do so you guys very sustain simple. your, you know, your organization? Um, I'd like to keep it simple, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the model is, is uh, you know, we have a census-based annual subscription to the exchange or membership fee or however you like to characterize that. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, X number of dollars per practitioner per year. You know, and it's based on the size of the organization. Uh, and then we have a, a, we charge transaction fees for each trade. And right now on our, our, our current model, it's about 19 cents a transaction. So if you buy a credential from Hospital X and you pay six bucks, we're going to charge you $6.19 for the transaction and we're done. And, you know, given the volume of transactions in the marketplace today, you know, we can create a very, uh, you know, a very nice business, you know, keeping it simple. So we talked a little bit about blockchain and the way that um, you know your be- people are beginning to understand how to use it and think about creative ways of creating these new business models. But what do you think are the biggest barriers for adoption? Um, you know, I, I, I and I, I know there's probably a lot of the faithful that are on, that listen to this podcast. <laughs> so forgive me if I offend you, right? But I, you know, blockchain and distributed ledger technology is another cog in the machine to me, right? Architecturally, you know, it's not the machine, right? You know, in our architecture, you know, we have a significant off-chain data storage, you know, uh, you know, model. We've got a very complex data that that we work for years to to figure out how to best deal with in general. Um, we've got a machine learning component of what we do. We've got all the security, user experience. I mean, and, and you know, that distributed ledger component of our of our environment brings to us this beautiful trust layer, as I mentioned earlier. But it's a piece of the architecture, and and you know, a, like I said, another cog in the machine. Where, where you know, I, I mean, let's be very candid. Blockchain is still early in its uh, maturation, right? Agreed. No question about it. 
Uh, but over the last just 18 months, we've seen massive leaps in, in capability um, and reliability. And, and moreover, you know, I think we're, again, not to offend half the folks who may be listening to this podcast, but, you know, there's, there seems to be a, a sort of puritanism around things like distribution. Right. And in industrial applications where you, you have sensitive information and PHI and all this other stuff, um, you know, some of that ideal needs to be um, drawn back a little bit to create a solution that works for the market. Right. And while we would love to see nothing but purely distributed, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, ledgers and, and public ledgers and everything else for this use case, it, it doesn't it doesn't work well. And it draws more concern into uh, you know, into, uh, you know, the marketing side of, of things versus just creating a solution that works, right, and works well. So would uh, ProCredX ever have the ability to sort of block a provider from ever practicing? Let's say, you know, ProCredX. No. no, no, no way. And here's, and this is a great question, here's why. It's liability, right? We're not passing judgment on people's competency at all. Rather, we're creating a place where folks who have certain pieces of information that others need uh, to, to acquire that inf information. Those organizations that gather all this verification uh, and, and verification, or sorry, verified information up, still have a fundamental responsibility to review that contextually within their organization as it applies to what they need and what their rules are and must bless it you know, regardless. And, and we're, again, providing that, that communication infrastructure and the marketplace to just rapidly acquire that information and move it through the remainder of their credentialing and privileging processes. Understood. You're making it a lot easier. Instead of going to each individual previous employer that the provider worked at, you can go to this exchange, collect all the bits and pieces of information that are related to this provider on their application and basically just either approve or reject the person yeah we we yeah and that that approve reject decision lies entirely with the exchange yeah. member and and we're we're again right. i want to be very clear we're not passing judgment on anyone right we're it's not even opining on what might be good or bad we allow clients to set up business rules that that flag certain things for uh, based on the data analytics and that say look you know um you know we won't accept a peer reference that's more than 90 days old and, and, you know, we're one organization on the street and they say, I'll take one that's up to six months old, right? That kind of, you know, of qualification uh, and qualitative analysis is entirely born upon the, the member's configuration of their rules within the exchange, right? So, so uh, yeah. Yeah, I really like this because it's not like this is your first time around with this sort of uh, process. You've been doing this with the military side of things for, like, it seems like at least over a decade. So yeah. you have the experience for sure. How big is your team right now? So we have at Hash, we have uh, 12 folks, I think. Um, our dev team is up in Boston, and there are uh, 11 or 12 folks on that team. Um, and then there's myself. And, and uh, you know, we're looking to not grow massively or even substantially over the next 12 months. You know, we're really going to be focused on running pilots, um, you know, with our partners and, and you know, crawling before we walk before we run um you know this is a this is sensitive and important information and we want to make sure that we do a very good job you know on the front end um on the dev end of building out something that we can bring to market knowing it's going to be very reliable and that's been thoroughly tested and you know we've got peer-reviewed analyses of our work that show you know the, the validity of the exchange and the reliability of the information and so forth right do you Will we any... find problems early on of course right sure but uh, you know, but if we if we go to market in a well managed uh, you know way, we'll find the problems, we'll fix the problems, and we will you know deliver a a simple and reliable product um, you know that uh, that we believe the market is is strong demanding. Do you have any results from existing pilot projects you have going on now, or is it still pretty early on in the process? It's still pretty early. You know, as I mentioned, we're still doing our analysis on the distributed ledger tech, right? and we've been at that for some time. Um, and you know we've as I, as I mentioned we already have the the bones of this platform built from the work we had done uh, a few years ago with the military um, you know but the integration of that distributed ledger into the, or tech into the architecture is going to be a four to six month long you know dev exercise 
um, just to get to beta. And then we'll be probably doing pilots for, you know, four to six months thereafter just to, to, to prove it out. I will say that our V1 is going to be very simple. You know, it's going to just basically publish demand and, and, and facilitate supply, right? And, and show the market that this data is here. You can buy it and you can, and you, can uh, you know, uh, uh, obtain it very, very quickly. Uh, and then we will be, you know, we've got lots of great plans for down the road in terms of where we want to take all this. But, uh, you know, but initially we'll, we'll create a very simple but very effective, you know, utility for folks just simply acquire that data. Do you think there'll be some sort of critical mass tipping point where uh, once people see what this exchange can do, everyone will just jump into it because it's like such an obvious decision once there's enough supply, right? We do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in, in all candor, you know, we've been, I, I personally have spent the last year and my colleagues at Hashtelf have spent the last year, um, you know, working to build out a significant initial consortium to bring this to market and not chisel away at two hospitals here and five physician groups there, but bring significant supply to the market that will catalyze, uh, you know, its, its acceptance. Um, simply by the sheer availability of information. I, I, I jokingly call it the Costco effect. And so insofar as if, you know, you, you're opening up a marketplace to great fanfare uh, and delight and people are waiting for months for this thing to open up and people walk through the doors and there's, you know, nothing on the shelves or very little on the shelves, they're, they're walking away and never coming back. Um, we need to have a Costco, um, you know, <laughs> level of supply. So when you walk in, you're finding everything you want and duplicates and, and all kinds of stuff just to, to visualize just the sheer redundancy of the information that exists today and, and give, um, you know, give our, our, our markets the ability to flourish uh, you know, as, as, as they grow regionally. Right? So is, this, is your plan to stay within the United States um, for, the, for the foreseeable uh, future? What's the... I would say for the short term, yes. You know, we had, in, in all candor, we've had a number of international healthcare markets already approach us. Um, to, to my delight and surprise and all candor, hmm. um, these are a lot of the, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, public health systems, you know, from, from countries all over Europe, Middle East, you know, so forth. And um, we made a decision uh, last year to focus on the U.S. as our initial go-to-market, but we've already built into the architecture, you know, the whole everything we need for international operations. It's, uh, the architecture is naturally multi multilingual. It's also multi-occupational, right? So there's, you know, although we're going to market in the healthcare market, there is no reason why we can't deliver a solution to the accounting profession, the financial services industry, the global construction industry, all of which are regulated and need, you know, have to do credentials verification for employment and sustainment. So we yeah. see a, a, a lot of opportunity out there. There's a huge uh, blue ocean there, I think, that people Big have ocean, tapped that's into. Right. So. So, but but you know I would say that healthcare is the you know if we can crack the nut in healthcare we will have we will have made our future growth uh, you know significantly easier because I don't think there's anything more complicated than physician credential. Do you have any company any competitors? Is anyone doing or trying to do something that you are building now? Yeah, you know I I, I know of a couple of organizations out there that have uh, talked about this you know the kind of the portfolio. A concept where you know they want physicians to go and um, build a portfolio that leverages blockchain to confirm its you know the the artifact um, you know reliability and so forth. Um, and then I, I when we sort of look at indirect competition, you know there's there's uh, everything from the whole identity space, you know the sovereigns of the world and so forth. Um, those direct competitors I mentioned earlier. You've got uh, credentialing software vendors out there who I, we don't want to compete with in any way, shape, or form. But you know they are doing some things internally, so where they can share information between different customers that are on their same platform. Uh, and then we have that whole provider data management space, where you've got you know folks focused on directory. Um, you know that that uh, you know uh, we believe you know when you take all four of those uh, those uh, uh, sub markets. Um, you know, we kind of fit squarely in the middle of that and can be of great value to all of them, right? And, and uh, uh, can create a solution that every one of those, uh, those markets can leverage. And, and frankly, then we can symbiotically leverage, uh, you know, value from them as well. Is there any sort of 
tradable token that's going to come out of this? I'm just wondering because a lot of these cryptocurrency blockchain companies have like a utility token. Does Pro Credix do any of that? Not at this time. So I'm not going to leave that out for the future uh, based on how that space matures. But, you know, very, very candidly, you know, if I go in and I'm talking to the CFO of a massive health system about what we're doing, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I try to convince them that they need to pay us in a, in a token, they're going to laugh me out of the office. It just yeah. is what it is, right? <laughs> Their accounting system isn't set set to pay Procredix coin, right? So, mm-hmm. so you know, I, I, I'm I'm more interested in getting paid in a timely fashion, and if that means we use fiat, you know, um, you know, then, then it is what it is, right? I, I also think that, you know, I I I, I want to make sure I'm being clear in that in that tokenization of the value, right? You know, it, you know, is a natural part of the blockchain experience, right? But it can be dollars and cents, you know, and and or Deutschmarks or British pounds or what have you, and you know when, when you think about you know um, bringing something like this an industrial scale to market, we don't want to impede our growth by making folks have to use our currency, right? right? And it doesn't make any sense at all, right? So agreed. Uh, plus, as we all know, healthcare, the healthcare industry is just in general slow to adopt new technology, so. I like the way that you guys are taking aware. your time. <laughs> yeah, you guys are taking your time to really understand which technology stack you're going to be selecting or which protocol you'll be selecting. So that's, I think, a great, great move. Yeah. Were there any events or announcements in the healthcare blockchain space, like recently, that uh, was surprising to you? You know, um, or unexpected? Um, I'm really pleased to see some of these um, big consortiums coming together. You know, the Synaptic. Yeah. Um, uh, our Synaptic Alliance, you know, um, is really impressive to me, and um, we would uh, we would enjoy having the opportunity to work alongside what they're doing, um, you know, down the road. Uh, you know, the thing that Anthem's put together with IBM is great yeah. to see. Um, you know, and 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 you know, we all kind of compete a little bit. There's a little competitive overlap, I'm sure, with all these different issues. But the, but the bottom line, in order to get market acceptance of this technology, mm-hmm. we've got to have stuff that's successful um, from a from a development and implementation perspective. You know, we've heard, you know, unfortunately, as you probably well know, for two years prior, three years prior, all this noise about blockchain and, you know, how it's going to become the next internet fairy dust to solve every problem in healthcare. That's That's not real. What we need to talk about are successes, right? And to be able to show the marketplace, this is what we're doing. This is why we're using blockchain, and this is, you know, this is how we've been successful, right? And and kind of in the hype, you know, train as best we can. I, I agree. I think a lot of it has to do with people don't understand what we mean by trust. So we say, oh, blockchain is going to make things more trustworthy. What does that really mean? I think that's like the core question that people are trying totally. to are struggling with. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, one of the things from a UX perspective, you know, we've been working, uh, working on for a while is being able to help folks visualize the ledger, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause if you say somebody, Oh yeah, well this is, this has blockchain in it, you know, and the average person is not going to know anything about what you're talking about. And they, you know, the edit menu item versus blockchain has the same correlation, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, you know, so it doesn't mean anything. Right. Um, but when you can say, look, here's how we can see the, you know, the entire life history of this piece of information. And we can see, you know, we can see the, you know, not the key, but we can see part of the key, you know, unmasked um, to show you that we know it's never changed. Right. And, and we can, you can see how many of your peers have relied upon this. And we can see how many of your peers had duplicates of this same, you know, piece of information. That really is what starts to engender the trust because it's, you know, as technology people, we all get it, you know, or at least most of us get it in terms of the how part. But, you know, in, in terms of our customers and, you know, a layperson or a, a, a person who's not technically savvy. Um, you know, giving them the ability to see the assurances of the of the of the ledger itself—that to me is the secret sauce. Uh, early, right? Early stage. Can you you know tell me about your like long term roadmap? Because we kind of talked about it a little bit, but what's your plan for the rest of 2019 and then uh, 2020, 21? We want to get to market by 2020. Okay. So we're going to be spending the rest of this year focused on dev work and top pilots and and so on and so forth. 
Um, you know, we uh, we would like to get into the health, the U.S. healthcare market, and do a great job, and and have a great proven product. Uh, and once that's completed, I see, as you mentioned earlier, the international space. Uh, I see um, non-healthcare use cases. Uh, and, you know, we've we've again been approached by a number of markets. Um, I think any real regulated market, like even construction, um, I had no idea that that everyone on a government construction project, like an airport or a freeway build or what have you, um, you know, has to be credentialed for the job that they're going to perform in. Or even like and, pilots and, and you have police officers no idea, right? and, and firefighters. So there's lots of different yeah, occupations. Exactly. Like these are all exactly. huge nuclear, potential I, you know, opportunities. I've originally worked in nuclear power plants. You know, where, you know, every nuclear power plant contractor needs to be credentialed to verify they have uh, can do the job that they say they can do as, as well as have not reached the radiological dosage limits every year. Right. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's another market opportunity, aviation, public safety. I mean, you name it. There's just, you know, just tons and tons and tons of places for this, this technology to be, uh, to be utilized. I got a question for you. If it's not too personal, what would you consider to be your biggest mistake? My uh, win. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, kind of put it in a professional setting. Let's say, um, you know, I made lots of mistakes. Any entrepreneur that doesn't that doesn't uh, tell you that's a lie through their teeth. <laughs> you know, I've done everything from you know, it was when I was early in my career, my mid twenties. I, you know, I I did the infamous build it and they will come a software company, huh. and you know, virtually no marketing and learn real real fast about the the ills of of, of poor marketing, right? Hmm. Um, you know, and I've I've uh, uh, you know seen um, or and been part of of companies that you know, doing turnaround work and things where you, you just shake your head and wonder, you know, how these people can get up and come to work every day and do the things that they do. Right. But, you know, I would say my, my biggest mistake probably, um, uh, you know, uh, not diligencing out uh, certain things before, uh, you know, you fully commit to them and learning three months down the road um, when you spend a million bucks or 500,000 bucks on something that, you know, uh, something wasn't really what it, you thought it was going to be, and spending the extra two weeks on the front end, you know, properly diligencing things, I think is a, a critical, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurial endeavor. I also think, you know, I mentioned this in an interview I did or a, a write-up I did the other day in Tampa. You know, also not believing your own hype. You know, as, as entrepreneurs, we get an idea in our head and it, it turns from 50 degrees to a hundred degrees to a thousand degrees in a matter of hours. And, and you start believing that everything is going to work out picture perfect in building out some new venture. And one of the things I learned from my consulting work and actually building out some companies in the nineties is, you know, you got to use, build a model for your business. I used to go old fashioned spreadsheets, right? But build out an extensive model for your business that simulates the market that you think you're going to create, uh, you know, for that business and proving to yourself that, you know, demand is there, that costs are, are realistic, that supply and, and demand are going to be aligned CFOs in that industry and say, this is what I think, this is where I think, you know, the, the business, uh, you know, can perform to, does this make sense? And most importantly, would you buy something like this? Hmm. Right. And if they, if you get wishy-washy answers or they say no, then go back to the drawing board because you're, 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 you're going to be fighting a headwind that's going to be insurmountable to be successful. So I learned some hard lessons around that early in my career. And I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, uh, you know, taken those lessons, I think, in a plan and had some pretty good wins uh, as a result of uh, not making those mistakes over and over again. So you've been an entrepreneur for many years, have lots of experience. Do you have a favorite business person uh, that you either admire or you find to be really um, helpful in, in learning from? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just a, a quick, interesting uh, anecdote. I had, I was uh, with my family um, going on vacation about uh, about eight or nine years ago. We were going to the British Virgin Islands for vacation, and. Um, got off the plane and walked over to this shack that w it was uh, basically a, a, had a dock where the boat where we were staying was going to come pick us up and take us uh, to this uh, to this uh, place, this hotel. Anyway, I'm standing there drinking a exceptionally strong uh, rum drink and uh, <laughs> and 
I look across the dock and I'm, I see Richard Branson standing there. <laughs> and I, 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 I looked over at my family and I said, I'm going to go talk to this guy. <laughs> nice. And I walked over there. He's just standing there with his boat, waiting for somebody to come in and take you know, them to his place in, you know, uh, you know, there in the BVI and had about a 15 minute conversation with him. And he was just the greatest person in the world. And I, I deeply admire his, his business acumen. He and I think a lot alike, um, you know, in terms of how you are successful building companies, how you treat people, uh, you know, how you, how you let people flourish and create environments for people to flourish. Um, you know, and I, uh, I, I felt, I felt very lucky to have had the opportunity to meet such a, such a great leader and, and a successful person. That's amazing. Yeah. He's definitely such a legend, uh, you know, in yeah. brand creation, starting many different types of successful businesses. Um, I mean, the Virgin cool brand is, I, I think rivals Coca-Cola yeah. right? in terms of I mean, its strength, it's right? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Anthony. That's, that's really amazing. Um, do you have any like final thoughts or messages to the audience anything i haven't asked that you would like them to know about no but i, I would like to you know i know we we probably have lots of entrepreneurs um and and folks who are really working hard to bring this technology you know to reality and unfortunately i'm old enough to remember the beginnings of the web back in the uh mid real beginnings back in the you know 93 to 95 time frame and you know uh uh, you know, we've kind of gone through the exact life cycle I saw us go through with the web where it was sort of this interesting thing and people had the, the you know, when the browsers came out, you know, all the neat things that, you know, the web was going to do. And then we had that sort of dark, you know, 18, 24 month period where, you know, some of the big you know, behemoths in technology we said, oh, it's never going to be secure. You can't rely on it, blah, 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 blah. And then real stuff started coming to market in about 98, 99 and things blew up. I see us in the exact same life cycle right now. And, and for folks, you know, that have got an idea that are looking to, to, to capitalize on this technology, even in its infancy, stick with it, keep your head down and make sure your use case is real and is going to be something that will drive demand. Um, and I believe that uh, we will all be very successful as, as some of the early adopters, you know, in this space. Are you a Bitcoin long-term believer? Do you believe that Bitcoin has value and will continue to have value in the future? Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Um, it, it really depends on where the banking world goes, I think. You know, because if banks endorse it um, and recognize it as a legitimate currency. Um, but what do you, you think know, the think, banks might become disrupted in a way? Because isn't that oh, what... Oh, big Bit time. Yeah. Big, of course, right? I mean, they, they, they look at that as being disintermediary, mm -hmm. right? For, for us, as we've all talked about for years, right? But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, just like I mentioned earlier with regard to currency and healthcare, you know, um, you know, trillions of dollars are moved through banks every single, you know, every single year, hundreds of trillions of dollars. And, you know, that's not going to change right now. And, you know, we need to be pragmatic about the reality of the world and, and what kind of change, you know, we can see this technology bring. I mean, think about, think about 25 years ago when, when folks were screaming from the mountaintops that the internet technology was going to kill the, the, the media business, mm -hmm. right? Here we are 2019 media business is still around, even the, you know, the newspapers that they're, they're struggling. I mean, we saw Warren Buffett had to say today about newspapers, but, but uh, you know, it's still there. And, you know, these revolutionary technologies make a big dent in things, but also the, the you know, the, the intergalactic mothership still sails along, you know, it's, it's, it's right. you know, it's pace and it's hard to make that thing turn. Right. So, so, but, you know, I think if I can extrapolate on one more thing, I think there's so much value creation that can be created, that can be, uh, you know, uh, brought to bear for just projects like what I'm doing right, where we don't need to disintermediate the international banking industry to create some great solutions, right? You know, we, and, you know, we, we, we have opportunity galore out there, uh, you know, for, our, for solutions. And I, I think if we, you know, focus on value, um, you know, versus, you know, you know, pirates, you know, creating the great pirate ship of, of, uh, of uh, financial services industry, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to find a lot of success, right? A lot of success. Agreed. I think a lot of the people who are thinking about it in a maximalistic sort of way mm -hmm. want to create this censorship resistant currency. And I think that's like the 
the reason it's uh, still very popular. I think Bitcoin does have a lot of value personally. And um, just that fact, because many countries in, in America, it makes sense. I, I see where yeah. you're coming from. But in a lot of places in the world, they just can't get a currency that they can rely on. Now, I totally agree with you on this. Yeah. Right. It's a hedge. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, you're buying a hedge basically. A hedge right and now. You, right. Yeah. It, it's something here. It, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's like, it's no different than like gold or what have you, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a way to protect your, your capital from massive depreciation. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, good, good Lord, look at what's happened to Venezuela. Right. You know, alone or, you know, or, you know, I mean, people were, you know, have seen what million percent inflation. I mean, it just, I mean, it just evaporates your capital. Yeah. Right. And, and Bitcoin's a great, you know, a, a great place to store that capital in a, in a, in a, you know, in a, even if with all of its fluctuations, it can't even hold a coin or no, no pun intended to, <laughs> to all of the, all of the devaluation that the, you know, that the Venezuelan currency is seeing for sure. Right. Agreed. So. Well, Anthony, uh, I think this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, Again, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.